This audio presentation is brought to you by the Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary. The BMA Seminary provides accredited theological education for equipping God's people for Christ-centered service and leadership roles with three online degrees available now. We are committed to the inerrancy and authority of Holy Scripture and to making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information about the BMA Seminary and its online degree programs, go to bmats.edu or call toll-free 800-259-5673. That's 800-259-5673. Well, what a joy it has been to be with you. Uh, as I said Tuesday, uh, there were people that were involved in the founding of this school or this seminary that I knew very well, and and uh, it's just so good to be here. It's so good to be here. <clears throat> I'm going to ask you to pray for me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, you've told us in your word that your strength is made perfect in weakness. Lord, take us, uh, teach us more and more, Lord, how to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Bless us in that. Strengthen me now, Lord, that I may, that I may do some good here in this place today. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear the precious truths of your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we were talking about the Lord Jesus Christ in the threefold office, the threefold office of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I started with Christ as priest, and the reason I did that, it seems to me, that there are three times in the Gospels when we have a record of a heavenly voice of confirmation coming. The first time is at the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the heavenly voice rings out, This is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased. And almost immediately, the Lord Jesus Christ begins a ministry that is uh, priestly, uh, resembling to some extent the Levitical priesthood in that the Levitical priests were called to, uh, they were called to teach the people the law of God. They did, sometimes they failed in doing that. And God had to raise up prophets to inveigh against them, but, but they were supposed to teach the law of God. And so you have the Lord Jesus Christ teaching the law in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew uh, 5, 6, and 7. But, but we're, we're talking about the, the perfect instruction in the law of God that comes from the Savior himself uh, with this heavenly voice of confirmation. And, and the, uh, the Old Testament priest was to confirm healing, 
people would present themselves to him and he would examine them and say, well, it looks like you can come back into the camp. You don't have to ring a bell anymore. You don't have to stay outside the camp. You don't have to say unclean, unclean. You can come back in now. But the Lord Jesus Christ did more than that. What did he do? He actually healed people. He was a greater priest, a far greater priest than the Old Testament Levitical priest. And when he taught the word, he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, ultimately, of course, you have the priestly ministry of sacrifice and the Lord Jesus Christ will go to the cross of Calvary. And as our great high priest, he will offer himself there on the cross. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the great high priest who offered the perfect sacrifice for sins, but he is also that perfect sacrifice that was offered. Then uh, Tuesday afternoon, we talked about Christ as prophet. The Lord Jesus Christ fulfills that expectation that Moses talked to the children of Israel about, recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 18. One day God is going to raise up a prophet like unto me. You better pay attention to him. You don't have to pay attention to those prophets that don't, when they prophesy it doesn't come true. You don't have to be fearful of them. But one day God is going to raise up a prophet and he will tell the truth 100% of the time. You better pay attention to him. And so the Lord Jesus Christ comes, goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, meets with two prophets of God, Elijah and Moses, and they discussed his exodus, which he was going to accomplish at the city of Jerusalem. The, by, the translations give it a lot of times, decease or, or departure or something like that, but it's exodine, the exodus of the Lord that he was going to lead at Jerusalem. How was he going to lead an exodus? He was going to do so by dying on the cross. He was going to do so by emerging from the grave on the third day. And this would be the greatest prophetic word ever spoken. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the prophet of God who was to come. And he is also the one who is the word spoken by the prophet as well. He is in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He is not only the prophet who speaks the word, but he is the word spoken and especially in his death on the cross. There is there is the word of God spoken about, about our sinfulness, about God's perfections, about God's righteousness, about God's mercy. All of those things are spoken by the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this morning, I want you to turn with me, first of all, to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14 and following. Let's get just a little bit. I'm, I'm going to try to pare this down because I know our time is limited, but I want to get just a little bit of the Old Testament expectation that will be fulfilled with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set his king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, 
nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes in doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Now he would be king. Saul would be king. David would be king. Solomon would be king. But did you notice this, this, uh, this teaching that begins here, and then there's a glorious fulfillment we'll come to in the New Testament in just a few moments. But look at it again. So that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above, the, above his brother. So he doesn't get the idea that he is more important than his brother Israelite, you see. Oh, yes, he's going to be king. But he's going to be a different sort of king because the kings of this earth love to lord it over their subjects, you see, but, and think that they're better than, uh, than their subjects. Just want to mention that. But there is this expectation. There's the messianic hope. <clears throat> Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 9 for just a moment. We'll read two passages of Scripture. The Messianic Hope in Isaiah chapter 9, very famous passage of Scripture. Uh, let's just start reading with, uh, let's start reading with verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. He'll be a descendant of David to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And my favorite passage from the Old Testament that I think is so significant, and it contains that title, that the Lord Jesus Christ used himself more than any other. Look at Daniel chapter 7, the seventh chapter of, uh, of the book of the prophecy of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, and let's just read two verses, verses 13 and 14. <clears throat> Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He looks like a human being. There came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
in that short space, what do we see? The glorious Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, with the glory of heaven, one like a Son of Man. The, the confirmation again of, of the Father himself, he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. He is invested with authority, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And so it's a glorious kingdom, and it's described in this way. It is a universal kingdom. It involves people of every race and tribe and nation, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. It's not just for the Jews. It's for people of every race and tribe and nation. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And two more things. It's everlasting and it's indestructible. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So there it is. There's the messianic expectation of the coming of the one who is the glorious Son of Man. <clears throat> now, let's look at, let's look at some uh, references in the New Testament where we have fulfillment of this in the Lord Jesus Christ. Very quickly, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, now what's Christ? Christ is Christos, anointed one, the Messiah. Where is the Christ, the Messiah, to be born? They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, or by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So here is this expectation, and the Jews certainly were hoping for the appearance of the Christ, of the Messiah. No doubt many of them, had a less than accurate notion of what he was going to be. No question about that. He would come, perhaps, and use the very power of God to kick the Romans out, and and the Jews would be invested with power again, and they would lord it over everybody on the face of the earth and rule and reign with him, you see. And he would establish his kingdom there. I'm sure many of them thought that that was the essence of what was going to happen. Look at Luke chapter 1, first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, verse 30 and following. Luke 1, verse 30 and following. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Yes, you are Jesus, Jehovah is salvation. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, 
and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Sounds a lot like Daniel chapter 7, doesn't it? Indestructible perpetuity of the reign of the one who is the descendant of David. Look at the first chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 1 and uh, about verse 43. John 1 verse 43. The next day Jesus, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now that takes us back to Daniel chapter 7 again, doesn't it? the glorious Son of Man. He is going to inherit a kingdom. That kingdom will involve people of every race and tribe and nation. That kingdom will be uh, an eternal kingdom. That kingdom will be an indestructible kingdom. All of that. But if they thought it was just going to invest the Jewish people with sovereignty over all the other nations, something different is introduced here. He said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open, heaven the dwelling place of God, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here is What is this all about? Of course, it goes back to Jacob's dream, doesn't it? He saw a stairway. Going from earth, the dwelling place of man, to heaven, the dwelling place of God. And, and the Lord Jesus Christ says, you've confessed me as the king of Israel, but I'm telling you that I've come to do something greater than that. I am going to be the way between earth, the dwelling place of man, and heaven, the dwelling place of God. No wonder later he would be recorded by John as saying, I am what? The way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. The angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He is that, he is that stairway. He is that ladder. He, has, he is that connection between earth, the dwelling place of man, and heaven, the dwelling place of God. Now, turn with me to the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John. This is where we have the, the uh, 
This is where we have the account of the heavenly voice of confirmation. First it is baptism. This is my beloved son. With him I'm well pleased. Then on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son. Hear him. And now there's going to be another heavenly voice of confirmation that we'll see in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John. A Hebrew woman had anointed Christ, and the Lord had interpreted this act as relating to his death and and burial. A great crowd had shouted the Lord's praises and called him their king. Now a group of Gentiles have come with a request to meet the Lord. And this causes the Lord to begin to talk about his death and resurrection and the consequences of of those events. So let's let's make a few points about what the Lord Jesus Christ sets before us here in the 12th chapter of John's gospel concerning his death, the meaning of his death, and his resurrection from the dead. First of all, the Lord's death and resurrection would bring truly deserved glory to him. Verse 20. Uh, well, let's, I tell you what let's do. Let's go back. Let's set the context. Let's go back to verse 12 of the 12th chapter. Let's start there. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it's written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, notice again, remember Daniel chapter 7, he he receives glory. When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So... The Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Verse 20. Look at verse 20. The Lord's death and resurrection, first truth, the Lord's death and resurrection would bring truly deserved glory to him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Ah, not Jews. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, the glorious Son of Man. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's going to be glorified. Glory is a will be clearly attached to his person and to his work. How will this happen? It will happen when he is cruelly nailed to the cross of Calvary. It will happen when he's lifted up in the agony of the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It will be when the Lord Jesus Christ suffers what you and I will never have to suffer because the Lord Jesus Christ took it upon himself. You see, And this is God revealing his glory. Beginning of the Gospel of John, the Word became flesh. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, you see. 
that's going to be manifested by his death on the cross. Secondly, the Lord's death and resurrection would produce a bountiful harvest. Look at verse 24. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Isaiah 53, verse 11, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Uh, later you know that it says, He shall see his seed. He will, he'll have his family, spiritually speaking. So, a bountiful harvest. The Lord's death and resurrection would become the pattern for becoming a Christian and for living as a Christian in order to honor God. That is the self-sacrifice. Look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The Lord's death and resurrection would only be a benefit to those who sincerely bow before Christ as their Lord. Verse 26 if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Verse 27, look at verse 27. Do you see in verse 27 that the Lord's death and resurrection, the Lord's death was the chief reason that the eternal Son of God came down to earth. He came to die. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. I've heard people say ill-advised things from time to time. I remember many years ago being somewhere and the preacher said, he said, oh, Jesus died on the cross. Yes, it was terrible, terrible thing. It was awful what they did to him. He died on the cross there. But the important thing is he was raised from the dead on the third day. Let me tell you something, dear friends. If you miss the importance of the cross, you won't understand the confirmation of the resurrection. Well, let, let's look at it. Let's look at it. Again, verse 27 now is my soul trouble. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but to this purpose I've come to this hour. Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 15, you know what it says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Oh, it's the precious death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the shedding of his blood on the cross of Calvary. It's his willing to go there and take upon himself something he did not deserve. It's the Lord Jesus Christ going to the cross and becoming sin for us. Oh, undeserving sinners that we are. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, perfect in righteousness, going to the cross of Calvary and shedding his blood. Now, he does emerge from the grave on the third day, and it confirms that he accomplished what he accomplished. But let me read, let me just read again what the writer of Hebrews says. He shared in flesh and blood, he partook of the same things that through death. 
he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and then deliver us. But, but do you see, there is a tremendous paradox here. It looks like he was defeated. He gives himself over willingly to death. It looks like all is lost. Remember the, the disciples, Luke chapter 24, walking along the road to Emmaus? Oh, we thought he was going to be the Messiah. He was his identity from them, you know. We thought, we thought, we just were sure he was the Messiah, but it looks like everything's lost. Now, they're in deep depression. Everything's, everything's lost. No hope at all. And then the Lord Jesus Christ began to explain to them how in the Old Testament scriptures, you have all of these, these pointers pointing to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and, and his ultimate victory over sin and death and hell. Listen, we sang it just a few minutes ago in that, that old hymn, the armies advancing, uh, all that military uh, imagery but the point is that the Lord Jesus Christ, as King of kings and Lord of lords, as the rightful sovereign, had come to do what no one else could do. The Lord Jesus Christ had come to engage the devil, engage the foe, and to conquer him, to win against him, and to deliver us from our sins. Well. The reason he came, he came to die. I, I remember hearing somebody say years ago, I was struggling trying to figure out, figure things out doctrinally, and, and uh, somebody said, well, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth to establish the kingdom, but they rejected. That was plan A. He came to establish the kingdom, but they they, they said, no, we, we're not interested. So then he went to plan B, I'll die on the cross for sinners. Oh, friends. No, no. He came to die. He came to die in the place of undeserving sinners like you and me. The Lord's death and resurrection is the chief mission of the Lord to sinners. Then received heavenly confirmation. When God, this is the third time, spoke audibly from heaven, verse 28, look at it. Father, the Lord Jesus Christ says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. Oh, yes, heavenly confirmation. And what was it going to be? It was going to be the defeat of Satan, of the devil, and of satanic power. Look at it again, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. At least... There's probably more than that, but there are two notable times in the Gospel of John when the Lord Jesus Christ seems to be talking about things that most people...
people talk about as future and only as future. One of them is in John chapter 5 where he says, Truly, truly, uh, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who here will live. It sounds like he's talking about future bodily resurrection from the dead, but he's not. He's talking about spiritual resurrection. He's talking about the necessity of being born again because he goes on to say, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And you've got to figure out just how much good you've got to do. And I'll tell you this, it's got to be perfect. Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. But the defeat of Satan and all satanic power, it would be accomplished by means of Roman crucifixion and would provide atonement Deliverance for people from every race and tribe and nation. Look at verse 32. Verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. I, when I'm lifted up. It was an old hymn we used to sing. It was a great tune. Uh, lift him up. Lift the precious Savior up. Now he speaks from eternity. And, and it's all about we ought to lift him up in preaching the gospel and so on. It's a figurative way I spoke, but that's not what this means. It's not talking about lifting up the Lord Jesus Christ in the preaching of the gospel. He's saying, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, he's talking. They knew, they understood he was talking about dying on the cross, being lifted up, you see. I'll draw people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. See, they're beginning to have scriptural problems now. It's scriptural impossible. You, you can't do that. When the Christ comes, he'll, he'll be here forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? They understand. They'd seen a lot of people lifted up by the Romans. Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light's among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks... To in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Well, I, I want to do two things. I want to talk just a little bit about what following Christ as king means. We see that we've established that he is priest, he's prophet, and he's king. And you have the heavenly voice of confirmation. Well, what does it mean for us to follow the Lord Jesus Christ as king? And then, if I forget to do it, somebody raise your hand and say you forgot to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and how he is not only the priest but the sacrifice, not only the prophet but the word, but how he is not only the king but the kingdom. All right, so if, if I were to forget, you raise your hand. But first of all, First of all, first of all, let's talk about uh, how we follow Christ as king. Do we share, we share priestly ministry with him, prophetic ministry to declare the praises of God. Do we rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ? And if so, there's a lot could be said about this. We talk about the proper weaponry, Ephesians chapter 6. We could talk about uh, any number of things. But I think I want us to turn to Mark chapter 10. It seems to me it's so needful in our day. Mark chapter 10, 
verses 35 and following. And while you're turning there, let me remind you of John chapter 13. What would you do if you had all power? (laughs) Sometimes I say, Lord, why don't you give me an awful lot of money? Lord, I could just do all these glorious things. I could could, uh, give to all kinds of good causes and advance the kingdom and so on. And the Lord in his wisdom doesn't give, probably because he knows it would be a terrible mess when I started doing it, you know. But but nevertheless, nevertheless, what would you do if you had all power? Well, what did the Lord Jesus Christ do? He divested himself of his outer garments. He knelt before his own disciples, girded himself, and began. He he took the the humble place of the lowest servant in the household. I'm told that when people came in, they they cleaned, but they had dusty feet. And, you know, the poor fellow at the bottom of the totem pole got to go around and wash everybody's feet. And the Lord Jesus Christ took that upon himself, and he began to serve his own disciples. If I, your Lord and Master, if I, your Lord and Master, have done this to you, so what? You ought to do this to one another. But look at, look at Mark, Mark chapter 10 and verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's like little children, you know. Come, Daddy, Daddy, will you do something for us? What what you want me to do? Uh, uh, but, but first just say you'll do it, you know. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. No doubt they had this notion that he was going to establish a kingdom. He would have probably a great palace there at Jerusalem, a a throne. People would be coming to his court and there, these fellows are these fellows are real politicians. One of them is going to be sitting on one side, one on the other, and people are going to be saying, "Look, there's James and John up there. They're really important people in the kingdom of God." Jesus said to them, "You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized?" And they said to him, "We are able." And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. They, they would die for the kingdom. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it's been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Well, I guess so. They saw what James and John were doing. Did you notice in the verse before But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Do we know who those are? Do we know who those are? Must be somebody really important. Hmm? Do we know who, who that place is prepared for? The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, that those poor, undeserving sinners who have been regenerated by the power of God, saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, are seated with Him in heavenly places. It's for all of us, you see. Not just some of us. 
but all of us. But they wanted to be special. And then he says, Jesus called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Remember the passage in Deuteronomy? You mustn't get to thinking you're better than your brothers. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, Dachanos, servant. And whoever would be first among you must be Dulos, slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom, isn't it? Very different, very different. The rulers of this world, the Gentiles, the nations, they lord it over them. That's what they love to do. Power, power. Force people to do your bidding. But he said, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. I believe only the Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled that. But then we're all called to be what? Diakonos servants. And to serve him, and in serving him, to serve one another. That's why Paul says, consider, consider your brother, your sister, consider them better than yourselves, more important than yourselves. It, it'll work out. The Lord will work it out just fine. Just say, consider them better than yourselves. Well, one more thing. I love this so much. Our Lord Jesus Christ indeed is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the great high priest, not Levitical. He's the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, who offered the perfect sacrifice for sins, and that sacrifice was his body given on the tree, nailed to the tree. He is the... He is the true prophet of God who speaks the word of God truly. And he spoke it in its most glorious manifestation when he died on the cross of Calvary. And he is that word spoken by his death and by, uh, by his resurrection from the dead. And also the Lord Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And I understand you can talk about the kingdom of God in all kinds of ways, and the Bible does. We talk about God's sovereignty in terms of his creation over the nations, uh, over this, over that, over the other. But I'm talking about the Lord Jesus Christ right now. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, but we need to also understand that he is the embodiment of the kingdom of God. And that to see Christ is to see the kingdom. He's told Nicodemus, you've got to be born again if you're going to see the kingdom. And who would Nicodemus see by faith? He would see the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because what is the kingdom of God? You know, there's poor old Queen Elizabeth over there in England. You know, I shouldn't call her poor. She's not really poor, but, you know, she's well taken care of. But she doesn't have a lot of power, does she? Doesn't have a lot of power. She's a ceremonial monarch. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we need to remember, really is king. He really is our Lord and our master. And we need to bow before him and recognize that. But why? And the answer is that 
where you and I have failed, where all, all of God's people in the Old Testament era failed, where all of God's people, though they might have been greatly used by the Lord in the New Testament era failed, where all of God's people down through the centuries have been found to be sinners who needed salvation by grace, that the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world and he was perfectly obedient. The essence of a kingdom is where the king is obeyed and and the Lord Jesus came in and did what no one else had ever done. He fully obeyed the Father. He was without sin. He was pristine. He was flawless in every way. The Lord Jesus Christ came into this world to accomplish what none of us had ever accomplished, to actually love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love his neighbors as himself. And he fulfills this by accepting this mission of going to the cross of Calvary and dying in the place of undeserving sinners. It is perfect obedience. And so when you look at the Lord Jesus Christ, you are seeing the kingdom manifested in the only place where it has been manifested with absolute perfection to this day. One day we will see it in fullness in eternity, you see. But right now it's in Christ, you see, fully. No flaw whatsoever. He's the king. He's the kingdom. Perfect obedience. So what are we saying? We're saying that he has an obedience. It's unlike anybody else's obedience. Our righteousness is filthy rags. We're saying the Lord Jesus Christ has a perfection. Be ye perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Uh, You don't have that. I don't have that. But Jesus does. And we're pointed to him. And we're told, look to him. Don't look to yourself. Don't look to your baptism as good as that is. Don't look to your church membership as good as that is. Don't look to anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who's perfect in righteousness. He's the one who's conquered sin and death and hell. He's the one who's King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the one who has been perfectly obedient, perfectly loved the Father, perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. Throw yourself by faith on Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And you'll be gloriously, gloriously saved. And it's grace, isn't it? It's grace. Because Jesus is the one who did it. Jesus is the one who did it all. All to him, I owe. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Father, we're weak, but you're strong. We're full of ignorance. Lord, you are truth itself. We have no power, we have no righteousness that will do our righteousness, Lord, is as filthy rags. But what a blessing to know that you sent the Savior into the world to die in our place. To save a people for your eternal glory. Oh, Father, we don't feel it like we should, Lord. We don't, we don't comprehend it like we should, but help us to understand it more and more. Oh, Lord, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ, for this great gift of salvation through him. It's by grace, without any admixture of works, 
may you be praised, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray it.